for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Outstanding Ohioans. To the Outstanding Ohioans. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Podcast. Podcast. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. My name is Ron Silico. This is episode 28. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Rick Hewn, who is a baseball biographer and has written several books on baseball. Rick, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here. And Rick, I, I, I have so many questions, and I, I know your time's limited, so I'll, I'll try and keep them short. But the uh, first question I always like to ask is, could you share your background with the audience? Yes, I'm... Uh, uh, actually born in Washington, D.C., but uh, spent most of my life in Ohio. I grew up in Marion, Ohio, uh, graduated from Marion Harding uh, High School, and then went on to Ohio University in Athens, where I had a, a dual major, um, history and, and political science, and then went on to uh, law school at Ohio State, the Ohio State University uh, School of Law in Columbus and um, took a job with uh, the federal government and was uh, uh, lived in Portland, Oregon and Los Angeles for a period of time and then moved back to Ohio and, and took a job with the Ohio Attorney General's office, represented the Ohio State Highway Patrol uh, throughout the state, and then uh, went into private practice um, and remained in private practice until, oh, I don't know, about uh, 10, 12 years ago when I decided I wanted to do some writing. And at that point in time, I uh, I was introduced by an attorney friend of mine to George Sisler Jr., the son of George Sisler, the Hall of Fame baseball player. And he was um, lamenting the fact that no one had ever written a, uh, a biography about his father and that his father was sort of a forgotten uh, baseball figure. And I was surprised. I certainly uh, thought, as a fan of the game, uh, I was aware of George Sisler. I certainly thought somebody would have written about him. But uh, when I checked the um, computer, the Internet, uh, Googled it and all that, I found that while there were a lot of articles about George Sisler, uh, there there was no biography of him. So uh, we talked a little bit about it, and I I said, would you be interested in – a biography if I wrote it, and he said, oh my gosh, yes, and so that started a uh, kind of a friendship, and, and um, it took off from there. Do you, do you recall how you met him exactly? Uh, yeah, it, actually it was through an attorney friend of mine mm-hmm. um, who had represented him in connection with um, uh, some estate planning work. And my friend knew that I was interested in writing and also interested in sports and was a big baseball fan and thought I might be interested. So he brought the two of us together and we hit it off. And as I said, you know, I checked things out first. Mm -hmm. And I actually talked to some some, uh, people about uh, whether or not that that would fill a uh, a, a, maybe an empty niche in in, uh, baseball biographical history. I uh, spoke with um, a professor who is uh, uh, a baseball historian named Dr. Charles Alexander down in Athens, mm-hmm. who 
has turned out to be a very good friend of mine, and yeah. and uh, Dr. Alexander was a, bio, a fam, pretty famous, well-known biographer of books about Ty Cobb and Rogers Hornsby, and asked him whether he thought that uh, maybe a book about Sisler would uh, was needed, and he said he thought that that was a, a great subject of, uh, for a baseball biography to fill a need, and mm-hmm. and we really took off from there. And, and Charles Alexander has written some great baseball books as well, so that's that's a great connection that you had there. Yes, and he was he, he's kind of mentored me over the years as far as what you know things uh, I should write about, perhaps or whatever. We kind of feed back and forth off of one another and become, have become friends, as I said, and also colleagues mm-hmm. in writing about baseball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one so many things struck me about the book and. And, you know, right off the bat, how did you get interested in writing about baseball? Well, it's uh, it probably goes back to my days in high school uh, back in Marion. Uh, I always have been a, a very interested in, in sports in general and writing in particular. And I, at that point in time, I guess I was interested in becoming a sports writer. I uh, wrote for the school newspaper and was the sports editor of the paper my last year in high school and really went down to Ohio University with the idea of becoming a uh, sports writer. They have a very good school of journalism in Athens at Ohio University and got sidetracked when I got down there uh, with the idea of going uh, on and and, uh, going to law school. And so I, I dropped the idea of becoming a sports writer, but all through my legal career, I maintained an interest in, in maybe someday doing some writing, and if so, writing about sports. Hmm. Yeah. Another thing that I thought was, and I compare it to, in some regard, a political dynasty, a family. Sis, the Sisler family has been involved in baseball, not not the entire length of the history of the game, but a, a pretty significant portion of that from from George through his sons. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, the, the Sisler family is uh, is kind of um, known known as a, one of the earlier uh, dynasties. Of course, we've had the Griffies since then, and, and mm-hmm. uh, the, the Aaron Boone and all those from Father Ray Boone. But um, George Sisler started. Uh, well, he played first in the major leagues in 1915. So um, he he started out. Uh, even his brother was a baseball player. The two of them played um, high school baseball and semi-pro um, baseball around uh, the uh, Akron area. His brother played some for the, what we now call the uh, uh, you know Akron University of Akron, but the. Um, uh, Sisler's then George's sons, uh, all three of them had something to do with baseball, uh, the least of which would be George Jr. as far as a player, but George Jr. played a little bit of, we played college ball at Colgate. This is the fellow that I worked with on on the book Mm -hmm. in the early stages. He played college ball at Colgate, then he played some minor league ball in the, uh, very briefly in the St. Louis Cardinals farm system, and he, he wore glasses, and back in those days, that was still considered a bit of a handicap. So he went from there into baseball administration, eventually becoming um, a minor league general manager, and also the uh, uh, 
president of the International League and also was a general manager for many years in Columbus with uh, what we know as the Columbus Clippers. And so he was pretty well known around the Columbus area. That was George Sisler Jr. Then um, he was the oldest of the three. Uh, the middle son, Dick Sisler, um, also played a little bit at Colgate, but uh, didn't finish there and went into the minor leagues. Eventually uh, came up and played with the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, had a, a very nice career with, with the Cards and the Phillies, I should say. And then um, for a brief time managed the Cincinnati Reds, was also a uh, coach for mm -hmm. a period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, the youngest uh, son, David Sisler, um, was a high school pitching star that went on. That was out of the St. Louis area where they, the family was living at that point. Um, went on to Princeton where he uh, was a baseball star and a basketball star. Mm. And then left Princeton a year or so early to become a, what they called back then a bonus baby back in the 1950s. Uh, for the uh, Boston Red Sox and pitched for Boston and then uh, was a relief pitcher for several other organizations, uh, the Washington uh, Senators, the um, Detroit, and uh, I think even a little bit for Cincinnati. Anyway, several several teams and had a, a, a nice career himself. So um, they all had something to do with baseball, and that, that was kind of unusual for the time. Mm-hmm. And you touched on this, Rick. One of the reasons, besides the fact you're an Ohioan, George Sisler has Ohio roots, and you touched on that. Can you talk a little bit about his family background in the Akron area? Sure. Um, George was uh, Ohio-born, um, and his parents, if I recall, were um, uh, involved in teaching. But they lived in the what I would call today would be the Manchester area, right outside of Akron. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in the early 1900s, um, and George um, uh, basically grew up in that area. And he, uh, he had two brothers. One unfortunately passed away uh, at a young age, um, but his brother Cassius uh, also lived up in that area. George moved away from home to live with his brother and his brother's wife uh, uh, so that he could go to high school and went to, um, it was called Akron High School at the time. It was probably then later Akron Central, what more people would know as Akron Central, but always in that uh, Ohio area. And in the summers, he would pitch uh, for some of these industrial league teams around the, uh, uh, the Akron-Canton area became very well known from in high school as a uh, baseball pitching star and uh, and also during the, the summer in the summer leagues. Uh, so he had quite a background in in Ohio and, uh, and the, the Sizzlers were an Ohio family. Mm -hmm. Something that I think people that would be interested in reading about reading in this book is just the flavor of baseball truly being the national pastime and you talked about it every town had a team every city had a team there were industrial leagues where companies sponsored teams and often would hire employees based on their skill on the field and, and your book really captures the essence of that time period so well well thank you mm -hmm. and, and i know you, you devote a fair amount at the beginning of the book to to his parents 
believing in the value of education. And he went to college at the University of Michigan and graduated and went to the majors. And he was somewhat of a rarity as a college graduate, correct? Uh, he was. Um, I, I think in, uh, when I first, when I wrote the book, um, I thought it was more rare. Since then, I found that there were a number of, of uh, baseball players back in, in the earlier days that were college grads, but it's still, I, I think we still consider it um, more uh, rare than the norm mm -hmm. for uh, someone to have not only attended college, but graduated. And, and um, George's situation was rather interesting in that while he was still in Akron and playing summer ball and it had had this reputation that was growing um, throughout the area as this um, wonderful star uh, pitcher. Um, he was he actually signed a contract with uh, one of the Akron teams, minor league teams, and while he was a minor, uh, even though his folks intended for him to go to college. And when they heard about it, they were of course upset, and, and he intended to go to the University of Michigan, and his father and mother insisted that, that he follow through on that. But in order to do that, there was a dispute over this contract that he had signed. And at the time, the University of Michigan was coached by uh, someone who became a rather famous figure in baseball history, Branch Rickey. Um, and, and with Branch's help, and it just so happened that Branch had a background as a, as a lawyer as well as a, uh, a baseball uh, coach, um, with his help and, and the help of people in the, in the, up in the Detroit area, they were able to set aside this contract uh, so that he, so that George uh, could play baseball for the University of Michigan, and he did uh, play there for four years, was a, uh, a major star, uh, was in fact is, is now a member of the College Baseball Hall of Fame uh, because of what he did. University of Michigan, and Michigan, uh, even at least one of the seasons, I believe, was granted what they, what you must call at that time, a mythical national championship. Hmm. And he was highly successful both as a pitcher and also showed a lot of promise as a hitter, uh, playing for uh, for Branch Rickey, at least for part of that time, and then other uh, other coaches for the remainder of the time when Branch Rickey moved to the St. Louis Browns. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Branch Rickey, and he's a fellow Ohioan, and he his career was so much intertwined with George Sisler's. Can you talk about how their paths connected throughout their tenures together? Yes, and, and uh, to hit on it uh, briefly here as far as the um, University of Michigan, uh, as I said, that Branch was um, the coach at, at uh, Michigan when uh, George Sisler uh, arrived there, and they developed a, uh, a relationship uh, that, as you mentioned, ran for the, the, really the remainder of their lives. Um, he was George's coach at Michigan, but then later on uh, became the manager of, of the St. Louis Browns and brought George to the, the Browns, again, through a lot of legal uh, maneuvering and um, and uh, you know, made made for quite an issue. I spent quite a bit of time in in the uh, George's biography talking about that. But anyway, the uh, uh, the ultimate um, 
solution, the, uh, George became a St. Louis Brown player. And then um, when Branch Rickey moved on, uh, uh, George remained with the Browns. But after his retirement, uh, Branch Rickey drafted him to come uh, to uh, New York City, where Branch Rickey was the, now the general manager and an executive with the Brooklyn Dodgers. So they reconnected in, in Brooklyn after George's uh, retirement from uh, from active uh, uh, playing, and they remained uh, in that relationship in Brooklyn. And then when Branch Rickey moved on to the Pittsburgh Pirates, he eventually brought uh, George Sisler there. Uh, when he was with the Dodgers, George was basically a, a scout and then later a batting coach, and I think he was more a batting coach and even a bench coach a bit in mm -hmm. Pittsburgh mm -hmm. with the Pirates for a number of years later, mm -hmm. and this would be towards the end of his mm -hmm. career. Since you touched on it, I wanted to dive into that a little deeper. He, George had the opportunity to work with Jackie Robinson, correct? That, that's correct. Um, in fact... Uh, he was not the main scout uh, for Branch Rickey when it came to scouting uh, Jackie Robinson, but he was one of the one of the scouts that uh, Branch sent out to uh, take a look at um, at Jackie and and see whether or not he thought he would uh, be able to play Major League Baseball for the Dodgers. And uh, so George did go out and and um, was was favorably impressed, although he did not think that uh, Jackie would be able to play shortstop, which was one of the original thoughts. Uh, he thought that perhaps uh, he would be a better, a better at second base. As it turned out also, uh, it turned out that uh, uh, Jackie played first base uh, initially with the Dodgers because they had other, another player uh, at second base who was uh, a veteran. And so Jackie started out at first base, which was George Sisler's eventual major league position, and George uh, coached uh, Jackie in the early days, teaching him how to play first base, and, and uh, I believe it's Jackie's autobiography and certainly some of the biographies. Uh, Jackie's quoted as mentioning how important that was uh, mm -hmm. to him uh, and teaching him how to play first base and making uh, uh, space for him to, to get on the playing field in, the, uh, in 1947 when he broke into major league baseball. Something that we're going to put in the show notes, Rick, is the statistics of George Sisler's career. But uh -huh. what I wanted to, what I wanted to, if you could give a snapshot for the audience, what what was the St. Louis Browns organization like during George's time playing for them, and what kind of ball player was he? Well, the the, the St. Louis Browns were not um, one of baseball's top teams. Certainly not when he. When he joined them in 1915, they uh, they actually uh, often were um, were let either last place or in the certainly in the second division. But they improved over time um, as his career went on, and um, certainly by 1922, they were in a position where a lot of people uh, considered them one of the front runners, and they made a, a real run at the American League pennant in, in 1922. Uh, that was uh, a year where George had a, a long uh, a batting streak that, that uh, broke the American League record, and he was going for the uh, for the uh, major league record. He 
He'd broken Ty Cobb's record. He was going for the major league record towards the end of the year and had a shoulder injury during a crucial series with the New York Yankees. Um, and those were the days when um, the Yankees were certainly in their early days of becoming a, a, a powerhouse, and Babe Ruth was at, uh, starting to uh, have his peak years. Uh, and at that time, um, I would say that most people considered Ruth and Sisler the best players in the American League, if not all of baseball. Uh, George had been switched from a pitcher after a couple of um, seasons to a first baseman by Branch Rickey, which turned out to be a highly successful move. Uh, George had some arm trouble, and, and uh, Branch Rickey didn't believe that he would last very long as a pitcher. So he experimented with him at first base, and, and by 1920, 1921, 22, George was probably the best first baseman in the American League, if not all of baseball. And so this 1922 St. Louis team um, came down to that crucial series and ended up, um, George could not uh, perform, he couldn't lift his uh, arm above his shoulder, and and his streak not only ended, but they ended up losing the, the crucial final game to uh, the Yankees that put the Yankees in the driver's seat with just a few games to go. So the Browns ended up in second place. After that, they, uh, due to an eye injury, George missed the entire 1923 season, uh, even though in 1922 he'd been considered the American League's most valuable player. So when he came back in 24, by then the uh, Browns were on the downslide again. So for most of his career, they were either moving up or they were down, but uh, George never played on a team that won a pennant, so he never got into a World Series. Mm-hmm. And maybe one of the reasons why he's not as well-known mm-hmm. today as some of the other great players of that time. Can you speculate on the impact of that eye injury? Because it seemed like there was some difference, at least statistically, in, in, in his ball-playing ability before the eye injury and after? Right. Um, as, as I mentioned, George was uh, getting better and better each year um, uh, after he switched to, a fir- to first base. And just to give you an example, uh, by 1920, which he always considered his, his best season because he was totally healthy throughout the year, um, his batting average is 407, and he set an all-time hits record that lasted from 1920 until, I guess it was about 2004, when Ichiro Suzuki broke the records for the most base hits in a season. So in 1920, he was hitting 407. He dropped down into the 370s in 1921. In 1922, even though he said it wasn't his best year, he batted 420 which, um, you know, is, is, is one of the highest batting averages of all time. And then in, but he did suffer that shoulder injury and, and towards the end of the season. Then in 1923, he missed the whole year due to uh, an eye problem. And in 1924, when he came back, uh, he only hit 305, which a lot of people would be happy to do. But to him, that was not... Uh, that was not good. And uh, he did bounce back somewhat in 1925 he hit in the 340s. He had other years in the 330s, but he 
he ne- he said, and was quoted as saying, he didn't think 340 was really that good a batting <laughs> So some people might have been offended by that, but when you put it in the perspective of uh, the fact that he was twice a 400 hitter, and that's certainly rare, nobody's done it since 1941, it shows you that, um, you know, he just considered, you know, 340 to be below what he thought he could do. Mm-hmm. So the eye injury definitely impacted uh, him, and there, there, uh, there were uh, some pictures that even quoted as saying he never was the same. There was one that said that he couldn't uh, concentrate to the same extent. So if he waited George out when he was in the batter's box, eventually he'd have to step out, or you could tell that he was not focused in, and so you could take advantage mm-hmm. of, the, of that. So his eyes were never the same. He squinted. You see photographs of him and. Um, after the, the eye problems, he's usually squinting. Uh, of course, back then, as I said, wearing eyeglasses was very rare and was looked down upon, so he, mm-hmm. he tried to muddle through the best he could. Okay. Something very unique about his career is he did play in the minor leagues, but it was at the end of his career, he, not at the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the um, it's kind of interesting in that he... He said that had he been um, drafted and forced to go to the minor leagues out of college, he would not have played professional baseball. He had an engineering degree, fully intended to become an engineer and use that degree, and and he was quoted as saying he would not have played minor league ball. Uh, He would have just gone, uh, forgotten about professional baseball at that point. Uh, Towards the end of his career, I think he had kind of a change of heart. he played uh, with the St. Louis until uh, 19 through 1927, and then he went to the um, Washington Senators briefly, was traded the Senators, uh, but they already had a very popular first baseman, so he wasn't there very long, and eventually went to the Boston Braves, where he had three rather productive years. In 1930, he, uh, he had over 300, but uh, he was... Uh, that was his last year. He was sent down or either retire or go to the minors. And he decided he'd go to the minors uh, and play with the Rochester Red Wings, which was in the Cardinal organization. And he was, had a terrific season there, and they actually won the little uh, World Series, uh, the minor league version of the World Series. So finally played on a, on a pennant-winning uh, team. I think that was in 1930 or 31. He played a couple years there and then uh, played around a, a little bit more in the minor leagues, but uh, as a player manager. He had actually managed the Browns beginning in 1924, I believe it was, mm-hmm. for three or four years uh, before uh, he was traded then to, to Washington. So he, he, he managed in the majors and managed a little bit in the minor leagues. I uh, wanted to wrap up, Rick, with a two-part question. Okay. Uh, and you, you, you hit on it. Uh, the premise of, of your book, uh, From His Son to You, was trying to restore some of his legacy. And I, I know you, you, you explore that, why, why he fell from the public eye after his career ended. But I think to illustrate how good of a ball player he was, can you talk about some of his peers, such as Babe Ruth, what they said about George Sisler as a ball player? 
Yes, um, they, they definitely uh, held him in very high esteem. Um, I, I can't give a quote from Babe Ruth, but I know Babe Ruth considered him an equal, uh, considered him one of the best players in the game, uh, put him on uh, some of his all-time uh, team uh, teams that they would reporters would ask him to name. Uh, many times, he's, the players would name different players at different times, but but he was definitely one that he named as his all-time first baseman, um, at least on one one or two teams that he that he named. Same with Ty Cobb. Uh, and, and in particular, Ty Cobb, I remember a quote is, Ty Cobb called him the perfect uh, ball player. And because he could do so much, he was a, uh, one, one of the best, uh, certainly uh, two or three best at, at the time he retired, all-time fielding first baseman. Of course, uh, one of the all-time uh, best hitting first basemen. And uh, stole uh, bases with... Um, but the league in stolen bases three or four times. So he was a, a good runner. He, he uh, had a good throwing arm. So he, obviously a, a good all-around player. So players like Cobb and Ruth considered him um, on their level um, and, as, as a ball player and certainly uh, at first base. Um, so, yes, that definitely um, uh, highly uh, regarded by his peers. Okay, so his peers highly regard him, but then after he, he quit becoming an active ball player, he, he he fell out of the public eye. People stopped talking about him as much, and you speculate in the book why that happened. Why do you think? Correct. Why, why do you think that occurred? Well, uh, I guess two or three um, things come to mind in that regard. One, I believe I touched upon earlier in, in our talk today, and that is that his team never uh, reached the pinnacle. It never won, they never won a pennant. They never played in the World Series. They never won a World Series. Uh, there are just a handful of Hall of Fame baseball players that, are, uh, that that's uh, occurred with. One that comes to mind is Ernie Banks, who just recently passed away. Mm -hmm. But um, So that would be one, uh, one reason in that... Um, that brings the, you under the national eye and the focus. Um, star, the star player, he was considered the best player ever to play for the St. Louis Browns. Uh, so a star player for uh, a team, you would think if he reached the World Series, there might be some memories from that World Series, uh, from uh, what he did in the series. A, a, another a secondary reason, and perhaps even more important, is that he played in St. Louis, which is, is um, uh, away from the spotlight. He never played in, in, uh, in New York City um, or, one, or Chicago or, you know, one of the, the really uh, uh, top cities as far as where the, the spotlight shines on their baseball players. Uh, so that, uh, that would be a secondary reason. And the third reason, and probably the most important uh, reason in my mind, is that he was a... Um, not a controversial player. He was very mild-mannered, very quiet, uh, perhaps uh, on the shy side more than, than anything else, uh, a bit introverted. Um, he didn't raise a, a ruckus. He didn't uh, have uh, problems. Uh, he signed his contracts. 
uh, didn't didn't have any uh, major controversies with other ball players or with his managers. And uh, one quote that I think sums up uh, his career very very well, and I didn't. This is from another writer, is that he he is a legendary baseball player without a legend. So in writing his biography, I hoped that perhaps I could uh, correct that that a, a bit and give him a legend and a background, and that's that's why I, I wrote the book uh, The Sizzler. Well, it's a great book, and those of you in the audience, I encourage you to to get that, Rick. You, you've written a couple other baseball books. Could you share f- with the audience what those are? That's correct. I, I wrote a biography of Eddie Collins, the um, uh, terrific second baseman, uh, played for the Philadelphia Athletics and the um, Chicago White Sox. He was the captain of the uh, Chicago uh, White Sox in 1919, which became known as the Black Sox. But he was part of a group called the Clean Sox. He was a, a very honest uh, ball player, one of the all-time great second baseman and the general manager of the Boston Red Sox who signed Ted Williams and Bobby Doerr and some other uh, uh, players that became uh, household names in Boston. Uh, and my most recent book uh, is entitled The Chalmers Race. It's about the 1910 batting race where the uh, Hugh Chalmers, the owner of the Chalmers Motor Company, offered one of his automobiles to the top uh, batter in the uh, major leagues for 1910, and uh, of course that became very coveted. Uh, certainly back then, a, a automobile, even if it, it was only a, about a $1,500 vehicle, but back then that was uh, uh, perhaps a salary for a number of people. So it was very coveted, and in order to get that, the players uh, really went after it hard, and there were a lot of shenanigans at the end of the year. Uh, resulting in a controversy that uh, goes on today. It's never been totally resolved. Mm-hmm. And for those in the audience that would be interested, how could people connect with you? I know you've got a website, if you could share I have that. a website. Uh, it's rickhune.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd be glad to talk to anybody there. Uh, there's uh, an email address uh, on the website. It tells a little bit about my books. Uh, the books can be ordered uh, on Amazon. Some of them are still in the, in the bookstores, Barnes and Noble, etc. But uh, Amazon or through the publishers, and um, you can get the information from the website or go directly to to uh, Amazon or Barnes and Noble to, to order a book. Okay. Do you have any new books you're working on at this time? No, nothing. Nothing in particular right now. Um, I, I did. I was an associate editor recently on a book about the 1954 Cleveland Indians, hmm. which Ohioans might be interested in. That was the, to me, the the greatest Indians team that didn't win a World Series, mm-hmm. uh, and my favorite team of all time. It's called Pitching to the Pennant, hmm. and uh, it has biographies of each player on the team and all the coaches and and uh, executives. And it's 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 a lot of fun if you're a baseball fan. Certainly if you're a, Cleveland Indians fan, I think you'd be interested in okay. in that. And we're we're also working on the 1995 Indians, a similar book about about the Indians in 1995 that lost in the World Series, but still were a terrific baseball team. Terrific, terrific. Well, Rick, I really enjoyed the interview with you today. Uh, again, I, I really enjoyed the book. Thank you for providing a copy of that. Oh, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure to uh, to talk to you today. Thanks so much for the interview. Okay.
Well, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This was episode 28 with my guest, Rick Hune, baseball biographer. Please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the blog post. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.